It's an incredible pleasure for me to be with you and a great honor. I have been on this campus once before. In 2000, we had a, in the year 2000, we had a family gathering here, and I think we were about 120 people there. And it was a good time here on this campus. And we were here a couple of, uh, exactly a year ago to visit Danny and Carmen here and on our way through. And it's a, a delight now to be back. And uh, President Maxwell, thank you for your kind hospitality and for the gracious invitation to come and spend three days boring you with the First Testament. Why is the First Testament important for Christian faith? Well, I have obviously lived with Ezekiel too long. You know how that is. When you live with someone a long time, you begin to sound and talk like that person. In our church, now we are well into a 72-week sermon series on this strange prophet. But I have, you've never heard of anything that ridiculous, nor have I, but we're doing it. I've learned a lot from Ezekiel, particularly with respect to the fundamental elements of rhetoric. And in a context like this, we would say preaching. Ezekiel knew his audience. They were a hardened and evil lot. Ezekiel knew the message God needed to get through to the audience, and Ezekiel knew what rhetorical strategies would be useful to get that message across to people who were extremely resistant. Well, among the methods he used was a funeral dirge. Now, a dirge is a, a song or a lament that accompanies funeral or memorial rites. In Ezekiel, the prophet composes a lament in chapter 19 for the dynasty of David that had sat on the throne of Jerusalem for 400 years. The Lord commands the prophet, but you raise a dirge over the princes of, Judah, of Israel and say, what is your mother? A lioness. And then at the end, the prophet writes, this is a dirge. It was treated as a dirge, a funeral song. In chapter 26, he composes a dirge that the nations will sing over the demise of Tyre. They will raise a dirge over you, saying to you, have you perished, been wiped out from the seas, O city of renown, once ruler on the sea? Now, I make no claims to inspiration in the sense that Ezekiel could. I do not have a direct word from God on this. But I offer the first part of this three-part lecture series on why is the First Testament important for Christian faith as a prose dirge for the First Testament in North American evangelical Christianity. But I have to open with a couple of Disclaimers. First, what I say here is my own myopic assessment of the situation. You will undoubtedly disagree with me on many points, and that's fine. I'm open to correction. The word of the Lord does indeed stand forever, but everything I say or write 
is in soft lead pencil. Second, you will undoubtedly find me overpassionate on some points and given to exaggeration. Please hear the hyperbole as a rhetorical device. I feel strongly about some issues, and the ruts in which we are, find ourselves are deep, very deep, so that sometimes the only way to get people's attention is to overstate the case. And third, a lot of what I have to say is autobiographical. When I talk about the symptoms of the demise of the First Testament, I am talking about how the Hebrew Bible was treated in the worlds in which I have lived, and to my regret and shame, how I have treated it myself. But something happened, dramatic happened, uh, in, to me in my days as a student at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon in another millennium, shortly after the earth cooled. For two years, our church was pastored by a man who had left his position as professor of Old Testament at our denominational seminary in California to come and shepherd this flock of about 350 folks in uh, the northern tundra. Through the depth and clarity of his preaching, which was colorized by his close conversations with leaders in the Jewish community and his obvious passion for the First Testament, actually the only Bible Jesus and the apostles had, but it came alive for me. This was the beginning of a long and incredible journey that has become more exciting with every fork and branch in the road. And now, I feel like a lizard in a king's palace. Proverbs 30.20. Actually, it's a gecko. Here, this, whoops, now we're not, we're, there. It's not the Komodo dragon from Indonesia. It is the gecko. You don't have them here in Three Hills. I'd be surprised. <laughs> but it's a gecko which you can hold in your hand. But I feel like a gecko in a king's palace. What am I doing here? How did I get here? How do I get out of here? Where's the food? But I feel that way because uh, I've been invited to come and speak on a topic that has burdened me for a long time. I see a few glimmers of hope here and there, but sadly, the First Testament remains a dead book for many evangelical Christians. Adapting the words of the prophet Amos, we can declare his prophecy in 8, 11 to 12, fulfilled. Look, the days are coming, the declaration of the Lord God, when I will have sent a famine on the land, not a famine for bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. People wander from sea to sea and from north to south. They run to and fro to seek a word from the Lord, but they don't find it. We've arrived there. If this is true of the Scriptures in general, it is certainly true of the First Testament in particular. In this first session, I propose to be somewhat clinical and diagnostic, exploring why this has happened, and then tomorrow we will return to consider what it might take to resurrect this body of literature. Can these bones live? 
And then we'll, uh, today I begin with an autopsy on the cadaver, the First Testament, then seek to diagnose the causes of its demise, and finally lament its loss. Can these bones live again? Well, given our core and common evangelical convictions regarding the Scriptures, we should expect a healthy respect for the whole Bible. People should be able to say, all Scripture is my Scripture. Not just as a slogan. Unfortunately, and ironically these days, if you want to hear a significant amount of Scripture from the First Testament in worship, you're more likely to find it in mainline Protestant churches where lectionaries prescribe regular hearing of texts from the First Testament when the community gathers each Sunday morning. But it's largely missing in evangelical worship. But second, I'm talking about the North American rather than the international scene. As you know, my roots are Canadian. I talk Canadian. But sad to say, the malaise that plagues the USA has also infected us north of the border. If you want to see robust attention to the First Testament, come with me to Africa or Asia, where First Testament stories and poetry come alive for the hearers. Sadly, even there, though, exceptions occur, especially in contexts where North American hermeneutical and dispositional germs have poisoned the population. So let's begin with the autopsy. How do we know that the First Testament is dead among Western English-speaking evangelical Christians? Well, the list of symptoms is long and sadly... In the past, many of these have been true of my own experience. So, this is very autobiographical. How do we know the First Testament is dead? Well, we avoid it. Even though the, New Te the First Testament contains three-fourths of the Protestant Scripture, it is rarely expounded in our pulpits. And when it is expounded, the exposition is relegated to evening and midweek services. What kind of signal does that send? Why can't we do this Sunday morning? Well, and as for our personal use, the problem is even greater. When's the last time you had your devotions in Leviticus? Really? The only disease worse than Deuteronomy is Leviticus. <laughs> or how about Nahum, ho-hum? or Second Chronicles, but we avoid it. Secondly, our walk through the Bible approaches. I'm not talking about your curriculum here. I'm so happy to hear that you don't just walk through the Bible. You work through the Bible. But our walk through the Bible approaches are a sign of how dead it is. When the First Testament is preached or taught, we tend to cover it cursorily, supposedly highlighting the message of the books or treating entire books in one sermon. Think about it. We do not realize what sort of signal that sends if we never settle down and offer our people unit-by-unit unit exposition the way we do the New Testament. And the worse the problem gets, the less we do to fix it.
Third, the illustrative use of the First Testament. Many pastors tell me they like the First Testament because they find lots of good illustrations in it for their preaching. I don't want to hear that. That's a problem. They use it to illustrate New Testament or topical sermons, and they think they are thereby honoring it. They rarely explore it for its own message. Et a problem, as they say in Moscow. Fourth, the proof texting use of the First Testament. First Testament texts are used, or should we say, abused. Is this usage or abusage? When we need biblical foundation for our dogmatic and ecclesiastical agendas, but seldom do we treat these verses seriously in context. We read Genesis 1 and 2 when we're debating evolutionists. We read Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 to prove the unity of God. We read Judges when we want to illustrate the contrast between the operation of the Spirit in the First Testament and in the New Testament. Wrongly so. We read the Gideon story as a, an example for discovering the will of God, which twists it all out of shape. He knew perfectly well what the will of God was. He was trying to get out of doing it, <laughs> like we often do. And we use... Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, and then we use it at the end of the fiscal year when the budget's running short. And the rest of the time, we don't give any interest at all to anything that comes out of the Torah. Fifth, the selective use or abuse. We have our favorite passage and books and resort to these when we feel the need to preach or teach or listen to the First Testament. The Psalms, Messianic texts in the prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah when you've got a building project and you need to mobilize the church. Seldom do we go beyond these familiar boundaries. Six, the biographical use of the First Testament. When we preach from the First Testament, especially narrative texts, we focus on the human characters, often treating them either as types of Christ, in which case the application has little connection uh, to the texts, and the texts have little connection to us, or as examples for us to follow, even when the biblical author intentionally characterizes them negatively. Half the time, Abraham is a jerk. I'm sorry. He's abusive to his wife? There are lots of problems with Abraham. But we idealize and idolize them. We do not let First Testament narratives give frank assessments of what they really are. And we do not Therefore, get the lesson that if anything good ever happens in God's program of redemption, it's in spite of his servants, not because of them. Seven, the applicational abusage. <laughs> when we preach from the First Testament, especially narrative texts, we focus on human character. Uh, uh, no, I'm repeating myself. In their drive to be practical, many preachers adopt what I call a homiletical hermeneutic. 
determined to be practical in our study. Our study is driven by the need to preach a sermon for the congregation. And we're not reading it to feed our own souls. We move too quickly from text to application for them. For often forcing lessons upon it that are actually alien to the text, but we really want to get the point across to our people because we're either frustrated with them or some other problem. We fail to transform people's minds by teaching them to think biblically. And we make them dependent upon us for the application of biblical truth. Have you ever thought of it? The more pointed your application, the more people you'll miss. I said that intentionally. We'll poke each other in the ribs and say, this one's for you, not for me. Well, we need to learn to get our minds turned around. We don't need quick, easy fixes. Eight, the spiritualizing abuses. Many evangelicals operate with an essentially Gnostic assumption that the spiritual meaning of a text is what really edifies, as if the literal meaning is just dry as dust and it has no nourishment, it's gristle and sinew. In reality, people like Origen, who had big theories on interpretation, spent most of their time, and many modern-day Alexandrians, with spiritualizing the Narrative so that Jerusalem comes to represent all kinds of spiritual ideas. The body, the soul, the spirit. Really? I thought Jerusalem was a city. And we forget that. But this hermeneutic provides cheap and quick spiritual solutions to problems in the text. And that we are frustrated with anyhow. Spiritualizing abuse age. Eight, nine. Reading the First Testament through New Testament lenses. Now I have to be very careful because I'm starting to step on toes if I haven't already. Before or instead of reading the New Testament in light of the First, we read the First Testament in light of the New. Do we do any other books that way? Your mathematics textbooks? Physics? Literature? No, we don't. Why do we do it here? And so that, get, that get, leaves no time for reading the first first and then figuring out what the New Testament means in light of the first. Don't ask Moses what's wrong with you when he disagrees with Paul. That's not Moses' problem. He didn't have Paul. But if Paul sounds like he disagrees with Moses, talk to Paul and ask him, how could you do that? How could you say that? We need to read it forwards before we read it backwards, which leads me to number 10. If we haven't offended you enough yet, here we go. There's Christologizing of the First Testament. Many are driven by the notion that we must find Christ on every page of the Bible. Arthur W. Pink finds Joseph to be a type of Christ in 101 ways. Well, when I read his book, I learn a lot about Arthur W. Pink. But I actually don't learn very much about Joseph. It's a problem. So, Melchizedek type of Christ. And there are types of Christ everywhere. 
and we say, if it doesn't talk to us about Christ, if you don't find Christ in every text, then it's not worth anything, Martin Luther once said. Here in the First Testament, you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. Simply and lo- simple and lowly are these swaddling clothes, but dear is the treasure, Christ, who lies in them. Now, I do want to find Christ all over the Scripture, but sometimes he doesn't appear as the Christ, which is a messianic title. Sometimes he appears as Yahweh, God. The New Testament makes two points about Jesus. One, he's the Messiah. But you'll find a dozen texts on the Messiah in the First Testament. But the other, he is God incarnate. When the people ask John the Baptist, who are you? What does he say? I am the voice crying in the desert, prepare the way of the Yahweh, he's quoting Isaiah. In Isaiah, it is the personal name of God. Jesus is God incarnate. And when I read the First Testament and I read about God, I'm reading about Jesus. Because he is that person. No need to go to all this typologizing. Uh, Eleven, nonsensical sloganizing. (laughs) We congratulate ourselves for singing scripture with songs like this. You are the king, you are the lamb, the seed of Abraham, the holy one, God's only son. You are the king of who I am. Well, apart from the poetic ugliness of that last line, (laughs) I mean, what does that mean? You are the king of who I am. Why not say, you're my king? Why not talk English? But what do all these metaphors mean? And the less we know, understand the scripture, the more gibberish this is. King, what's that? In America, we're anti-monarchy. Lamb, seed of Abraham. Oh, he put it in the ground, did he? Holy one, God's only son. What does this all mean? It's just a string of meaningless pearls, if you have no background in the concepts. It's magic. Or, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Er Kam Kana Adonai. What does that mean? I get more emails. Will you explain this to me? Well, all I can say is, it's obvious whoever wrote that song had one semester of Hebrew. I know where it comes from, but he got the pronunciation all wrong. I love the melody, and if it's in your head in the morning when you're having a shower, it's in your head all day. It's beautiful. Man, but what does it mean? No, 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 no. This is bumper sticker Christianity, not biblical Christianity. And finally, the magical use of the First Testament. Many treat the Bible as if it were a secret, it had a secret code. And if you look carefully to see how the letters line up, you can unlock that. For decades, two decades ago, we were taken in by Michael Drosnan's The Bible Code. I wish I'd thought of that. I wouldn't have had to work another day in my life. It'll sell. But he found Watergate, Clinton, 
a whole bunch of other contemporary events. It's in the Bible, really. Just read it diagonally, and that's what the letters will give you. <laughs> or backwards, or whatever else. Titles like this sell well, but they trivialize the text and land up drowning out the message, the life-giving message of the First Testament, and are hermeneutically worthless. Well, a dozen symptoms of the death of the First Testament. It's been dead a long time. But how did we get here? So let me talk a little bit about the diagnosis. Factors contributing to the death of the First Testament. How did this happen? Why has the First Testament died? Why do we not take it seriously? Let me offer a few reasons. Really, excuses why pastors and lay people, in effect, write off the First Testament. My sister, bless her heart, may she rest in peace. When she found out that I was going to do a PhD in Old Testament, she said, why would you do that? Well, some, uh, there are lots of excuses we give. I'd like to speak of the excuses here as myth conceptions. I am lifting now, intentionally. Sometimes I've lived with Ezekiel too long, and that's what he does uses crazy ways of getting people's attention. So let's talk about the myth conceptions about the First Testament. Over the past five decades of teaching and ministry in the church, I've heard them all in one form or another. First, there's the ritualistic myth. We can do this very quickly. The First Testament is rejected because it's preoccupied with boring ritualistic trivia declared to be obsolete with Christ's final sacrifice on the cross. Why do we need need to read about all those sacrifices in Leviticus? It's useless. Gristle. Second, there's the historical myth. The First Testament concerns the times and histories of nations so far removed from our own that unless we have a purely academic interest, what it has to say about the condition, human condition today is hopelessly out of date. But have you realized how two-faced we are? We would never say that about the New Testament, even though it's almost as old as the First Testament. 400 years younger, maybe. It's... The, 2,000 years old, too. The ethical myth. The First Testament advocates or assumes standards of ethics that are rejected as grossly inferior to the law of love announced by Jesus and the high stock of play we place on tolerance in our enlightened age. How can we take seriously a document that applauds the Israelites when they wipe out all the Canaanites inhabitants of Canaan, men, women, and children, and then scolds them when they don't. There's a problem. Fourth, the literary myth conceptions. Well, when you read some parts of the First Testament, we don't know what to do with it. I mean, the laws of Leviticus, the genealogies in Genesis, the speeches of Job. What about the Song of Songs? Guys, you better not take that literally. And tonight, tell your wife, your belly is a heap of wheat. <laughs> that won't go down well. 
But it's in Proverbs. I mean, it's in the Song of Songs. What are we going to do with it if we cannot allegorize or spiritualize or Christologize it? Then there's the theological. Well, of course, the more we have these problems, the less we do to fix it. That's my plea. <laughs> the theological myth. Uh, uh, no, we're, we're going backwards here too quickly. Uh, the, the, liter- the theological myth. The First Testament presents a view of God that is utterly objectionable. It's not only that the Israelites are a problem for Can- killing the Canaanites. When God commands them to do it, that's a bigger problem. This is a huge theological problem. And then there's the dogmatic myth. Well, that's already the dogmatic myth. If God can uh, be such a mean God... What are we supposed to do? But this has other dimensions, and that relates to our dogmas, not just the biblical text. Among the dogmatic schools that inhibit reading the First Testament for all its worth, we have the following. And again, I'm going to be autobiographical here. Heretical Marcionism. Marcion was a second century Christian heretic who proclaimed a radical discontinuity between the the first, well, actually, he called it the Old and New Testament, Israel and the church. He rejected the First Testament as uh, he rejected the First Testament entirely and accepted only those New Testament texts which denounced the First Testament. So, in his canon, he had bits of the Gospel of Luke, 10 Pauline epistles, and that's it which actually is not so different from many evangelical churches. The church in which we worship is a very Pauline church. It's hard to go beyond that. Then there is what I call Neo-Lutheranism. I am happy for Luther's discovery of the gospel of grace in the course of his study of Romans, But he came to identify the ritualism and works-oriented approach to salvation of Roman Catholicism with the First Testament law. But in Christ, he discovered believers are declared to be free from the law, happy condition. Now I can sin without fear of perdition. No. Free from the law? Which Israelite would have sung that? They would have sung freed by the law. You see, Luther's problem was he was confusing his experience in Roman Catholicism with the First Testament when he should have been identifying it with Second Temple Judaism. That was the problem. And that is not the same as the First Testament. And then extreme dispensationalism. And now I'm becoming autobiographical. I grew up in this world. But by dividing the history into our seven dispensations, the first principle of interpretation is, to which dispensation does this text apply? But since we are now in the church age, which is a dispensation of grace in contrast to the age of Israel, a dispensation of law, we don't need to take the First Testament seriously at all unless it speaks about the Messiah or end-time events, really. And then 
uh, finally, extreme anabaptism. Again, this is where I come from. My roots are Mennonite, Mennonite brethren, if you want to be very specific. I admire the Anabaptist emphasis on the communal nature of the life of faith, the conviction that the proof of one's spiritual regeneration is not a creedal statement, but a life of humble godliness, and that and they're constant holding up Jesus as the one whom we should model, after whom we should model our lives. But the Anabaptists' understanding that with the New Testament, a fundamentally new ethic has replaced the covenantal ethic of the first is simplistic and deeply problematic. As if something happened to God between the Testaments. He changed. And in the end, we land up being process theologians. Well, Paul had the same mind as Jesus when he said, the whole Torah is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. The whole Torah is fulfilled. That does not mean, now that we have that, we can flush the whole Torah. No, it means that if you have love for God and love for one another, you will do whatever the Torah invites you to do without even having the law. Andy Stanley was not the first to draw a sharp line between the First and New Testaments. We cannot blame him for the demise of the First Testament in evangelical circles. The Hebrew Bible was a dead book long before he called on evangelicals to unhitch it from their faith. He has simply given eloquent, if poisonous, expression to what a lot of people have been hoping someone would say. What he says to justify this unhitching is all wrong, but that he says it doesn't surprise me one bit. I've been hearing it all over the place for 60 years, and I've tried to spend my life giving back to God's people the only Bible Jesus and the apostles had. The symptoms and the causes. How about the prognosis? The effects of the death. And with this, I uh, hurry. Where does such a death lead? Ezekiel 37, 1-14 describes in visionary form the effects of Israel's death at the hands of the Babylonians in 586. In verse 11, he records the people's response at the sight of the bones. Our bones are dried up. Our hope has vanished. We are doomed. And as I look at the evangelical landscape in our land, I am tempted to use these words to describe what I see. The First Testament is dried up. Our hope has vanished, and we are doomed. It's not difficult to see the recognize the effects of the loss of the First Testament. First, I observe a woeful ignorance of the First Testament in the students. I've been teaching for 45 years, 50 years, and it gets worse every year. And I ask myself, what are we doing in the churches? Second, because of the loss of the First Testament, we observe a sorrowful misunderstanding and underinterpretation of the New Testament. I give just one example: the Lord's Supper. We all know that the Lord's Supper is rooted in the Passover festival, Christ our substitute lamb. 
But it's rooted in far more than that. If you read the gospel text and then First uh, Corinthians passage, you discover that it's rooted in the First Testament, but he talks about this is the blood of the covenant. That had nothing to do with the Passover. That had to do with what happened at Sinai. Through the blood that they sprinkled on the people and on the altar representing God, the covenant was sealed. Now we discover this blood of the covenant Christ's blood seals us as his people. But then uh, Matthew, in his text, I read the New Testament too. I have to let you know that once in a while. I am a Christian. (laughs) Matthew adds, he's the only one, for the forgiveness of sins. The Passover sacrifice had nothing to do with forgiveness. It was not a sin offering. It was a substitute offering. But Jesus' sacrifice is a forgiveness. So you got a three-point sermon out of that uh, one little practice. Third, the loss of the First Testament has resulted in a fundamentally heretical and Marcionite stance on Scripture. Oh, I've forgotten to give you all of this. (laughs) But let's go. Here we go. Some, Some cartoons. Let this represent the Christian Bible. Well, We have the New Testament and the First Testament. The light part is the Christian Bible. For most people, the First Testament, though it's three quarters of that. But then even within the New Testament, if we're Marcionite, if we admit our Marcionites, I'm sorry, uh, you never know when you're working on your computer what will show up on the screen. But in any case, there's the New Testament, but within the New Testament, we have a canon within the canon. We don't actually know what to do with the Gospels, but we know what to do with Paul. So Paul is our canon, the Pauline epistle. But within Paul's epistles, we have a canon within that. It's especially Romans and Galatians, because here he's especially hard on the law. And so that's where we we read all of Scripture through the lens of the law kills. Really. And we forget that Paul said, The law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Uh, We'll have more to say on that tomorrow. And finally, fourth, the loss of the First Testament has led to an impoverished culture. I mean, you can use a biblical metaphor these days and people don't even realize it. Something like, by the skin of your teeth. Well, it's not actually literal Hebrew, but it is the King James translation of a Hebrew text. There are lots of these things. When you mention them, they don't have a clue that this is biblical. Finally, our our treatment of the First Testament has left the world to mock a discredited evangelical Christianity. They see how we read the Scriptures and they say, Really? On what grounds do you read it that way? If we read other texts, yes, I know that this is inspired. But on the other hand, it was inspired using human conventions of composition and writing. But we read into the text something it was never intended to say. And for this reason, the First Testament has died. Thinking people find it incredible what we do. We veil the message of inspired authors with multiple layers of trivia and speculation and waste vast resources arguing about issues 
the Scriptures were never intended to resolve in spite of Jesus' own claims of the First Testament as His Scripture and Paul's affirmation of its authority, effectiveness, and usefulness for the church. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired of God. And he's thinking about the First Testament. All we have left is a cadaver which might be the subject of scientific investigation by clinicians and critical scholars, but it has no pulse, it's cold, it's dead, dead as rocks. And if we let people who never read the First Testament sympathetically, whether they be critical liberal scholars or neo-Marcionite pastors, if we let these folks determine our disposition to this magnificent treasure, matters will only get worse. It will soon be forgotten as one more relic of ancient history. We don't even know that there was such a thing as the Old Testament or First Testament, as I prefer. Is there then no hope? Can these bones live again? Oh Lord, you know. But that's the subject I shall address tomorrow. Let's pray. O oh, gracious God in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken on earth in human language that we can understand. We thank you that you spoke supremely and climactically in Jesus Christ, the incarnate God and the Word embodied and fleshed. Forgive us for not listening to your voice. Forgive us for being selective in what we will accept from your mouth. Forgive us for letting this precious treasure die. We pray that you would resurrect the scriptures that Jesus and the apostles treasured. That you would resurrect it for us. For the glory of your great name the building up of your church, and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We ask in the blessed name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. God be with you.